Okay, today we will take the discourse number 64 of the Machimanikaya, the greater discourse to Malankya Sutta, Maha Malankya Sutta. Even, even though Malankya Sutta doesn't play a very big role in the Sutta, he just gives a long answer and the rest of the Sutta unfolds quite independently of him. Okay, this sutta begins when the Buddha is living at Anathapindika's monastery, Chaitapana, in Savati. <coughs> and then one day he addresses the monks, calls their attention, and he asks them the question, Do you remember the five lower fetters as taught by me. And when the Buddha asked this question, then the monk Malankya Buddha replies that he remembers them. And Malankya and the Buddha asks, In way do you remember the five lower fetters as taught by me? And then <laughs> Malankya Puta enumerates the five lower fetters. I remember personality view as a lower fetter taught by the Blessed One. I remember doubt as a lower fetter. I remember adherence to, I would now say, to rules and observances as a lower fetter. Sensual desire, ill and ill will. It is in this way, Venerable Sir, that I remember the five lower fetters as taught by the Blessed One. And I think as most of you who have studied even a little Buddhism know, there are ten fetters that are spoken about in the Buddha Suttas. Okay, so there are these ten fetters that the Buddha frequently speaks about, and these, in general, are the bonds or ties that bind us to samsara, to the round of repeated existence. And in order to reach the final end of the Buddha's path, complete deliverance, liberation from the round of becoming, one must cut through and break all ten of these fetters. But these fetters are divided into two general groups. The five lower fetters, Orambhagya, Sanyojana. That are the, these are the fetters, they're called the near fetters, or the lower fetters. And these are called the lower fetters because these are the fetters that keep one bound to the sensual realm of existence, the kama loka. And then there are another five fetters called the five higher fetters, Udambhagya. And these are the fetters which will keep even an anagami, a non-returner, still in a very subtle way bound to the round of existence. And normally the process of liberation is divided into stages according to the progress that the practitioner makes in breaking these fetters. That is, 
the first stage of liberation is achieved by the stream mentor, the sotapanna. And the sotapanna is one who breaks the first three fetters. So the stream entera is one who cuts off these first three fetters, which previously, before the attainment of stream entry, one has never broken these fetters before. And these first three fetters are personality view, which means the view of a self, of a truly existing person or I within these five aggregates, some kind of substantial entity. And even somebody who has practiced vipassana meditation and maybe has very deep insight into the impermanence of the five aggregates, into the insubstantial nature of these five aggregates, has still not cut off the fetter of personality view. The fetter only is cut off when one reaches the first, you say, the first true knowledge or penetrating knowledge of a stream enter. The stream enterer sees not only the impermanence and insubstantiality of the five aggregates, but he is one who has caught a glimpse of Nibbana, of the deathless. And by penetrating through to that ultimate truth, he sees the utter impossibility of there being any self or any kind of substantial person within or behind the five aggregates. And by seeing the unconditioned element, he cuts off all doubt about the truth of the Buddha's teaching. That is, he's now seen the truth of the teaching, even though it's somewhat dim his vision, because he still has other defilements. But maybe it's a little bit like on a cloudy day, you might get a glimpse, just for a moment the clouds might blow away, and one can see the sun. Then, right after one sees the sun momentarily, a new flock of clouds come and the sun is covered up again. But one has no doubt that the sun is there. <laughs> and then by seeing the truth of the Dhamma, the Sotapanna cuts off what is called Silabhata Paramasa. Often this is translated, I would say mistranslated, as clinging to rites and rituals. But actually Sila Bhatta has a broader meaning than rites and rituals. I think that translation, <laughs> not clinging to rites and rituals, it was developed by the early British translators of Buddhist texts who came from a Protestant background and were reacting <laughs> against the ritualism, maybe of high church, Anglican Christianity, of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they fastened that meaning from their own background onto the Buddhist text. But actually sila doesn't mean right, and bhakta doesn't mean ritual, but sila means here not really virtue or the rules of training, but it's a kind of attitude of clinging to certain rules and especially to the types of rules that were prescribed by the Brahmins and the other ascetic sects. And the idea that just by observing these rules that this is the sufficient path to liberation. And bhakta, or actually bhakta in Sanskrit, vrata, are the different types of practices of ascetic self-mortification which were observed by the other non-Buddha sects. And even I would say that we could apply this within Buddhism, 
that just clinging blindly to the rules of training, clinging to different practices with the attitude that this is the kind of mechanical path to salvation. One just has to observe the rules very dogmatically, very rigidly, and undertake these practices like chanting these suttas so many times per day and going on pilgrimage to these places. I think all of those, not that it's a good idea to do chanting or to go on pilgrimage, but thinking that this is a kind of mechanical and um, a, a very rigid and dogmatic path to deliverance. Okay, so the stream enterer cuts off these, and the, the reason the stream enterer cuts off this adherence to rules and observances is because by practicing the Noble Eightfold Path and reaching that first stage of enlightenment through the practice, he now sees where the true path to deliverance is, that is, in the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. Okay, and so the stream enterer is one who cuts off these first three fetters. And now when the person continues undertaking the practice, at a certain point of his faculties become ripe enough, he'll reach another stage of enlightenment, of realization of the ultimate truth, as a result of which he will weaken to a very, very high degree the next two fetters or bonds. These two fetters are sensual desire, that's desire for the objects of the five senses, and ill will, the propensity to anger, irritation, hatred, antagonism, irritation, and so on. For the once returner, these fetters are not yet eradicated, not yet eliminated. He still has certain tendency, propensity to sensual desire, still has certain maybe, propensity to anger, but the fetters are weakened to such a degree that he will take rebirth only one more time within the sensuous sphere of existence. In the case of the stream enterer, because he has not yet even touched those fetters in any very uh, effective degree, the stream enterer might take rebirth up to seven more times. But in the case of the once-returner, there's only one more rebirth into the sensuous sphere. But actually, <laughs> the commentaries say that there can be two <laughs> rebirths, <laughs> since if he takes a rebirth in the Deva Loka, he could still take one more rebirth back into the human world. <laughs> Okay, but then the person who continues to practice still further will reach a third stage of enlightenment in which he eradicates completely these two fetters of sensual desire and ill will. And the person who reaches that stage of attainment is called the anagami, the non-return. And this person <coughs> will not return, will never return to any realm or any destination within the sensuous realm of existence, within the Kamaloka. And the reason why he will not return to any realm, in this, to any destination in the sensuous realm, is because those five fetters are the tie that bind us to the sensuous realm. 
And so when the anagami cuts off these five fetters completely, then he'll never again come back to any mode of existence in the sensuous realm. If he doesn't go on to reach the final stage, our hardship, then he will take a rebirth in the fine material realm, in what's called the Brahma Loka, and then he will reach final liberation there. And so now in this sutta, the Buddha is going to teach the path that leads to the eradication of the five lower fetters. In fact, it's the same path that leads to full liberation to our hardship. But at the very least, if it's followed through completely, as the very minimum, it will lead to the third stage, the stage of non-return. And so in sutta after sutta, the Buddha has explained the ten fetters just enumerating them. And now he asked the monks if they remember the five lower fetters, and Malankhya actually answers <laughs> exactly the way the Buddha explained them. And yet the Buddha um, <laughs> criticizes him for this answer. He says, Malankhya to whom do you remember my having taught these five lower fetters? in that way. And it's something of a puzzle, and if one reads the text, it almost seems contradictory, since that's exact <laughs> this is exactly the way the Buddha explains them, over and over. But the commentary explains that the reason why the Buddha criticized Malankhya on this point is because Malankhya was holding a kind of subtle wrong view which he did not express but which he was still keeping reserved in his mind. And this was the view that a person is bound by the five fetters only when they actually arise in the mind. Other, at other, on other occasions he doesn't have the five fetters, he's free from them. And so now the Buddha is going to point out the mistake, the error in Malankhya way of thinking. And he does this by taking an example. And I say from the standpoint of, of contemporary psychology, it's a very, very striking example. He says, Would not the wanderers of other sects confute you with the simile of the infant, the little baby boy. Now we see a little baby boy, a little baby girl in the carriage and one says, ah, how cute, how charming, how lovely. And we always say, ah, how innocent the children are utterly harmless like a child, they're pure, innocent. And yet here the Buddha is going to show that all the time these five fetters are still present even in this innocent, charming, sweet, lovely little baby child. Like we always think that children are very, very charming, but this is a thought that sometimes comes to me, <laughs> a little morbid, that maybe when uh, Adolf Hitler was born, maybe his parents and the relatives came to see the baby and they said, ah, what a charming, lovely little baby. And yet here in the future, the deaths of maybe 10 million people are going to come just from this little so-called sweet baby. When Stalin was born, all of the relatives must have come and said, ah, what a sweet and lovely little, <laughs> little baby.
Okay, so now the Buddha goes and says, continues and says, for a young tender infant lying on his back doesn't even have the notion person, the idea personality, sakaya. He doesn't have any kind of philosophical theories. Am I the body? Am I the mind? Am I the feeling? The consciousness? Am I in the body, in the feeling, in the consciousness? No, he doesn't have any kind of thoughts or ideas like this. But the Buddha says, and this is very important, the underlying tendency of personality view lies within him. Okay, the next, a young tender infant lying prone does not even have the notion, here the Pali word is dhammas, which could mean teachings or it could mean things in general, phenomena. And so one might ask, how could doubt about the teachings or doubt about things arise within him? The little baby doesn't have any doubt. Is the four noble, are the four noble truths true or not? Are things impermanent or permanent, self or non-self? And yet, when he grows up, he might become a very troubled skeptic, always plagued by doubts. The young, tender infant lying prone does not even have the notion here, silani, I would say not rituals, but um, rules, we could say. So how could adherence to rules and observances arise in him? Yet the underlying tendency to adhere to right, to uh, rules and observances lies within him. A young, tender infant lying prone does not even have the notion or idea sensual pleasures. So how could sensual desire arise in him? Yet that underlying tendency to sensual desire lies within him. <laughs> Even though this has been said many times before, but here we have the Buddha 2,500 years ago anticipating what Sigmund Freud had to discover <laughs> in the 20th century. And then a young, tender infant lying prone doesn't even have the notion living beings. So how could ill will towards beings arise in him? Yet the underlying tendency to ill will lies within him. So this is the way the Buddha will point out how the wanderers of other sects might refute this view as being held tacitly by his disciple Malankyaputta. And now to understand the meaning of this passage, we have to recognize that all the defilements, according to the Buddha's teaching, can exist in two different modes. Okay, these two different modes are called, one is called Pariyutana, the other Anusya. The word Pariyutana, it means literally the base or the stem is Tana, which means standing, Ut, which means up, and Pari, around. So the Pariyutana is the better or the defilement when it has risen up and surrounds the mind. Therefore, it's sometimes often translated the stage of obsession, or we could say manifestation. That is when the defilement becomes an active force in the mind. The other mode of the defilement is anusya 
which the stem is saya, which means lying, and anu, which means along with, and or following. So the anusaya is the defilement in the stage when it's lying along with the mind or following along in the mind. This is sometimes often translated the stage of latent tendency, dormancy, or underlying tendency. And so when one is in a very cheerful, happy state, seemingly very content, calm, equanimous. At that, in that condition, we may not have any pariyutanas. None of the defilements are manifest in the mind. But we cannot say that the mind is free from the anusins the underlying tendency. And in the case of this little baby lying on its back, maybe we would say that he doesn't have any of the pariyutanas. But actually, <laughs> I think it, one would have to say that he does have at least the pariyutanas, the obsessions of de- sensual desire and ill will, even though he doesn't think of sense pleasures or think of living beings. But when he gets hungry, then he's crying. And when he gets some delicious food to eat, then he gobbles it, gobbles it. And when he's troubled by something, some unpleasant sensation, some loud sound, then he becomes irritable and cries and howls and so he really does have these obsessions of sensual desire and ill will. But in just conventional, conventionally speaking, one could say even this little baby doesn't have the obsessions but still those tendencies, the anusias are there and when the baby gets older and matures, then the anusias will start to manifest in the defilements which will make up his character. In some people, maybe the anusia of sensual desire will become more prominent. And so those people will become of a called lustful temperament. In others, the tendency to ill will will become more prominent, they become the angry types. In some, the tendency of the personality view will become very prominent, they become the speculative type, and so on. And so here, according to the Buddha, when we speak about the Sanyojanas, about the fetters, the ten fetters, we have to realize and understand that the fetter is not only that particular defilement in the stage of obsession, the pariyutana stage, when it actually possesses the mind, but also it refers to this anusya stage, the stage of underlying tendency, latent tendency. Okay, so now after the Buddha has spoken this simile, then <laughs> actually at this point Malankyaputta just disappears from the Sutta, even even though the Sutta bears his name, but he doesn't reappear <laughs> reappear again. But now Venerable Ananda speaks up and says, "Now is the time, blessed one. Now is the time, sublime one." for the Blessed One to teach the five lower fetters. Having heard it from the Blessed One, the bhikkhus will remember. And so the Buddha now will elaborate 
um, the way the five lower feathers actually operate first in the case of the ordinary unenlightened person and then in the case of the noble disciple who has reached at least the first stage of enlightenment but has not yet gone to the end. And so here now in paragraph five, the Buddha takes what we call the the putu, the, put, <laughs> the putujana, the uninstructed whirling, the untaught ordinary man. This is the person who has no regard or insight into the nature of the noble one. The Aryans. He is unskilled and untrained in the Dhamma of the Noble Ones. He has no regard for the Sapurisa, the true men, the saintly individuals. And he is unskilled and untrained, undisciplined in their Dhamma. And so he abides with a mind obsessed and enslaved by personality. The word obsessed is in fact this pariyutana, though in the past the participle sense, pariyutita. The mind is obsessed, possessed, and enslaved or overrun by personality view. That is, he adopts some kind of personality view, some view about the self, his true self. He identifies himself with one or another of the five aggregates where he thinks he has some true, permanent, individual self or even a universal self within or behind the five aggregates and he doesn't even see this as a problem as a bond in any way he thinks this is the truth this is the real correct understanding of reality and then he might build a system of ideas upon this view of self and all of his attitudes will be governed by this idea of self. And he does not see or understand even the need for any kind of escape or deliverance from this view of self. But he thinks maybe that having the correct view of self is the, is the way to deliverance, the way to salvation, the way to enlightenment. And when that personality view has become habitual in him and is not eradicated, not removed, then it is a lower fetter. That is, it functions as a fetter which binds him to this lower, lower world of the sensuous realm. He abides with a mind obsessed and enslaved by doubt. That is, he's a person who becomes a victim of doubt, who might be always plagued by doubts about these philosophical questions concerning the nature of his true self, his existence. In some of the suttas, the Buddha enumerates the various forms this doubt takes. And it's just like when <laughs> what the Buddha enumerates in one paragraph, it's almost like a history of philosophy, East and West. <laughs> Did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? How did I come from the past to the present? Will I exist in the future? Will I not exist in the future? How will I exist in the future? How will I get from the present to the future? Do I exist in the present? 
Maybe I don't exist in the present. What am I in the present? How am I in the present? So all of these questions that disturb the mind of the thinking individual about the true nature of his self, the true nature of the world, <coughs> these are all different manifestations or outgrowths of this basic underlying tendency of vichikicha, doubt. or else he abides with a mind obsessed and enslaved by this adherence to rules and observances. Ah, <laughs> uh, you have to go to Kataragana <laughs> and break a coconut that has been blessed. <laughs> In this temple you have to break it in such and such a way and if you don't um, throw the flowers on the ground first, even if you break the coconut, <laughs> it won't bring any good luck. And you have to light 16 sticks of incense. If you light 15 by mistake, forget about it. <laughs> you don't get any benefits. And um, for the Brahmins who had to bathe every morning in such and such holy rivers when you bathe at you know, by 40 a.m. you wash off your sins but if you get into the river 5.45 a.m. it's too late you're still bound by your sins So also, then his mind is obsessed by sensual lust, and maybe he adopts the view that there's no, nothing harmful in sensual lust, and so he thinks he should just indulge his desires freely. Maybe he thinks it's very harmful <laughs> to suppress the sensual desires. One should just try to <laughs> to enjoy whatever desires arise in the mind that's the way to real happiness and good mental health and um, he might be obsessed by ill will and so he thinks whenever you become angry you should express your anger don't try to control it <laughs> if you <laughs> try to control the anger then that's repression and then you're going to get ulcers and high blood pressure and tension <laughs> but the way to achieve peace and harmony is for everybody just to express their anger and ill will and then <laughs> we'll have a very harmonious and happy world <laughs> and so in this way by adhering to all of these five fetters not seeing any danger in them not understanding any need for liberation from them, not seeing any path <coughs> to liberation from them, then what happens is that these five fetters become more and more deeply ingrained in the mind, more and more strongly imprinted upon the mind until they become completely habitual until they grow over and envelop the mind and keep one utterly bound within this lower realm of the sensuous, sensuous sphere. And so this is the case with this untaught, uninstructed putujana the ordinary person of the world. Okay, then the Buddha takes the contrary case next.
This is the well-taught noble disciple, the Suttava Arya Sadhaka. This usually is Sometimes the Buddha uses the word Arya Savaka not to mean somebody who's necessarily a Sri Mentora, but just as a way of referring to his own disciples. Particularly, the Arya Savaka is used as the lay disciple, the virtuous lay disciple, in contrast to the ordained disciple. But when the Buddha speaks of the Suttava, Arya Savaka, the well-taught, the instructed noble disciple, almost always he is referring to the somebody who's at least a stream mentor. So I say that this paragraph it's a little problematic. A reason I'll point out. The Buddha says, the well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones. He has even some, not only esteem, but some insight into what it means to be an Aryan, a noble, a noble one. And who is skilled and disciplined in their teaching, their Dhamma. Who has regard for the saintly person and the skilled and disciplined in their dhamma does not dwell with a mind obsessed and enslaved by personality view. He understands as it actually is the escape from the arisen personality view and personality view together with the underlying tendency to it is abandoned in him. Yeah, the reason why I find this passage a little questionable or ambiguous about what is meant by the noble disciple is because it says that he understands as it actually is the escape from the arisen personality view. It seems to imply that in this person, this noble disciple, the personality view can still arise, but he knows the escape from it. But actually maybe we could understand that here the noble disciple, the expression noble disciple, is referring to a person in a, over an extended period of his development. Maybe from the stage where he first learns and undertakes the practice of the teaching up to the stage where he becomes a stream mentor. So now, before he becomes a stream mentor, because he knows the teaching, and is engaged in the practice of the teaching, he doesn't abide with a mind obsessed and enslaved by personality view. If he's not yet a stream mentorer, still the tendency is there, that underlying tendency towards a view of self. But he understands as it actually is the escape from this arisen personality view. That he understands that by practicing this threefold training in virtue, concentration, and wisdom, I can escape from personality view. And then by actually carrying out the training, then when he becomes a stream enterer, then personality view, together with the underlying tendency to it, is abandoned, abandoned in him. As he is engaged in practicing samadhi and vipassana, perhaps from time to time this underlying tendency to personality view might manifest in some way like in a certain stage of his practice, he might seem to see a self. Maybe when he's contemplating the five aggregates arising and passing, maybe he'll think, 
maybe that's a self which is observing them arising and passing. But because he knows the Dhamma, at least through learning, he'll realize that this idea of self is unjustified, unacceptable, and so he'll discard it. But then once he reaches that point of breakthrough where he sees the truth of the Dhamma, then the utter, even the very subtle tendency towards a view of self is eradicated and can never arise again. Similarly with doubt, in the stage of preliminary stage of practice, he does not abide with a mind obsessed and enslaved by doubt, but maybe sometimes, from time to time, subtle doubts will arise. Maybe when he's engaged in contemplation, there might come some doubt. Is the Buddha really the enlightened one? Will this Dhamma really lead to liberation? And so on. But because he has firm trust in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, even though these thoughts of doubt might arise, but he doesn't become obsessed by them, but he just dismisses them. Then once he comes to the plane of realization, of penetrating the truth, then even that very subtle tendency to doubt is eradicated. by these adherence to rules and observances, but when he's engaged in the practice, maybe from time to time, <laughs> the thought comes up, maybe I should make that trip to Katarakana. <laughs> <laughs> Did I light 16 sticks <laughs> rather than 15? But he doesn't get obsessed by them. And then when he reaches the stage of stream entry, then that tendency to adherence, it's eradicated. Okay, that's up to stream entry. Now the other two would only be eradicated by the disciple. So in this case, even for a disciple who is a once-returner, there will come up some um, there will arise thoughts of sensual desire, even perhaps some degree of, of obsession by them, but not a very strong degree, of, or at least they'll arise the thoughts where they, the, the tendency will arise so that it manifests in the form of thoughts of sensual desire, but they will not become obsessive. And similarly with thoughts of ill will. But when that disciple, through the practice, reaches the stage of non-returner, then ill will and sensual desire and ill will, together with the underlying tendency to them, is abandoned. I think maybe we'll stop the discussion at this point and if there are any questions on what has come so far, then please. That is so. No, that is not true. It seems that conceit and personality view are in an ordinary person they're somewhat linked together in that because one has a view of self this can lead to an inflation of conceit and actually conceit is more fundamental 
in that the most basic form of conceit is what, what's called asni mana, which is the conceit I am. Not simply, not necessarily thinking I am better, I am the greatest, but just thinking I am somebody. But then when one starts wondering what am I, and then starts identifying that idea of I with something in the five aggregates or something behind the five aggregates, then that becomes personality view. And so somebody, okay, in the ordinary person, the two sort of fuel each other. But for the stream enterer, he will, or even the non-returner, they will cut off personality view, so that they don't have any idea about what am I? Am I this? Am I that? But there's still the subtle idea of I am that will arise. But they don't think, am I this or am I that? The first three. The first three. Yeah. Nobody will be able to tackle it one, one of these. If at all, it has to be three at one. Yeah, but I think the three <coughs> actually hinge on Sakaya Ditti because it's actually Sakaya Ditti. I would see. I would say is sort of the main obstruction to the attainment of stream entry. And so what has to be done to reach stream entry is to see through the falsity of all ideas of self, all views of self. So when that is done, then one sees that deliverance has to be achieved through insight, through realization, through knowledge and insight, not through any kind of following rules, these rules and observances, sort of ritualistically or mechanically. And also because one sees the truth of anatta with perfect clarity, there's no more doubt about the truth of the Buddha's teaching. And so that's why I would say that all three fetters go when Sakaya Titi is broken. Any additional questions? Okay, then we will continue with this discussion next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.